There has been a running debate for centuries between Arminians and Calvinists over whether sinners can resist God's grace. And of course, you know that's the fourth point of Calvinism, irresistible grace. And for those of you who don't know TULIP, uh, TULIP is an acronym that stands for the five points of Calvinism. T, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And that's the label they gave to us. Uh, we don't think it's exactly uh, the best language that could be used to describe some of the points, but we can live with that. Uh, we can uh, teach based upon what they have given to us. It's certainly better than an alternative that I've seen some Arminians uh, throw at us. It's the acronym STUPID. Uh, sovereignty of God. Um, unconditional election. Stupid. Um, <laughs> Not potato head. <laughs> Particular redemption, irresistible grace, and then definite, uh, uh, definite salvation. But anyway, um, I think I prefer tulip to stupid. <laughs> but uh, they're not the only ones that um, uh, throw labels uh, at the opposition. Of course, uh, Calvinists unfortunately throw some labels around too. We describe the average evangelical here in America by the poisonous name plant, a lilac, a limited depravity, I choose God, <laughs> and limitless or limited power in the atonement, arrestable grace, and carnal security. And then they have one for five-point Arminians that's a little bit different, and they for sure don't appreciate this one. It's a chaff. Um, the C is uh, cooperative efforts of God plus man. He elects those who he sees will per, uh, have faith and persevere. And uh, the A is atonement for all, free to resist grace and free to fall from grace. Now, the problem with all of those acronyms is that they, they really portray the other camp in the worst uh, possible light. And uh, they're not entirely accurate in, in either side. And it's certainly true of the fourth point of Calvinism, irresistible grace. See, Calvinists do not deny that sinners resist God. In fact, that's the only thing they can do unless God regenerates their heart and uh, changes them. In fact, uh, if you take a look at chapter 7, verse 51, this is exactly what Stephen had said uh, was going on. Chapter 7, verse 51, speaking to the Sanhedrin, he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's the problem. It's an unregenerate heart. And when the heart is unregenerate, the second part of that verse is always going to be true. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And that's what's going on in this passage. Up until God's grace breaks Saul in verses 1 through 9, and then makes a Paul in verses 10 through 19, Saul was resisting with all of his might. And so today's sermon is only going to be two points. It's rare you get under 10 points, right? So uh, rejoice, a two-point sermon. Point one shows the spiritual blindness of Saul. And I think he stands as a paradigm of all sinners. Uh, the outward call of the gospel, that's the thing that I preach. That's what you do when you're witnessing to your neighbors. That outward call of the gospel is always going to be resisted by unbelievers until God breaks into their hearts. And point number two is spiritual sight. That deals with the inward call. Uh, no one, not even an incredible enemy like Saul, can successfully resist the inward call of the gospel. They will resist the outward call, but there's no way they can resist the inward call. 
And so let me suggest a different acronym for Calvinists that I think more accurately reflects our theology. It's the acronym ELECT. E stands for extensive depravity. In other words, every part of man is affected by sin. Some people mistake the idea of total depravity that people can't get any worse. You know, they're as bad as you can possibly get. And yet the Scripture says, no, people can progressively deteriorate into sin. Total means the totality of the human. Extensive means every part of man. You can't trust man's mind because man's mind was corrupted by the fall. And so we have sinful thinking. We even make mistakes in arithmetic. They call that the noetic effects of, uh, 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 of the fall. And so we can't trust the mind. We can't trust our wills because our wills are bound in corruption. Uh, there's the bondage of the will to sin. Uh, the body is affected, as is our spirit, our conscience, our emotions, uh, the sense of the law that's within us. That tends to be many times mixed up in people. Uh, their consciences don't work properly. Our impulse to dominion. And so there's an extensive depravity. The L stands for Lord-centered election. When you say unconditional election, it misses the fact that there are all kinds of conditions that had to be met, but Jesus met them, right? It's an election that is Lord-centered. It's not based upon what God sees in us, whether you think of it as faith or perseverance or good works or anything else. It is Lord-centered. And then the second E, effectual atonement. All whom Christ died to save will be saved. His atonement affects everything it intended to affect. Definitely, it's not limited in power. C is conquering grace. Uh, though men may resist God's grace for a time, saving grace will always conquer. God will have His way. And then T is triumphant saints. We not only must persevere, we will persevere because of God's preserving grace. We progress according to the Scripture from power to power, from grace to grace, from faith to faith, from glory to glory. Uh, God will perfect that which He has begun in His saints. He's never going to quit. No one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. And so, triumphant saints. And with that as a background, what I want to do is, first of all, I want to look at the resistance that Saul showed toward the gospel of grace, uh, beginning at verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. <clears throat> that word still implies that uh, there is coming a time when he will no longer have that resistance, but it also implies that there has been a persevering in his unbelief. And that's the natural state of the heart until God rescues it. Don't be surprised when people continue to be unbelievers despite seeing miracles, despite hearing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing all kinds of proofs for the truth of that gospel, despite the fact you've poured out your love into their lives. Don't be surprised when they persevere in unbelief. There's a lot of people who just do not seem to be phased by the preaching of the Word. Saul... Uh, did not seem to be uh, phased. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, no doubt was a part of the uh, Sanhedrin trial when Jesus was being uh, tried to be crucified. Uh, he was uh, uh, a witness to many miracles that had happened in the last few years. He was probably there in chapter 4 when this guy who had been lame from his mother's womb and had been healed was being interrogated by the Sanhedrin. And... Uh, it was such a remarkable miracle, no one could deny it. At the Sanhedrin chapter 4, it says that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. That was the Sanhedrin saying that. 
Saul was a part of that. So he couldn't deny a miracle had happened and yet he was resisting these people with all of his might. That is not something that should, should surprise us. It is a spiritual blindness that is upon every human heart until they are regenerated by God's sovereign grace. He heard the preaching of Peter and John. He saw Stephen's face glowing like that of an angel's. In fact, that's probably how Luke came to find out. His friend Paul had told him uh, how remarkable it was to watch this person that they were persecuting, exuding the love of God and even praying for him. Here he is putting him to death and he's praying that God would forgive him. Uh, He was just blown away by what he saw in Stephen's life. He had seen uh, his incredible preaching. And I think all of that was part of the preparatory work as God was making his conscience miserable making him feel terrible. In fact, uh, that's what's meant by the phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. That's not in the majority text here. Uh, But later on in the book, in every version, you will see that these exact words were spoken. And so God said, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Goats were those sharp little pointy sticks that they would jab at cattle, you know, to make them go. And that implies that there is a person who's goading Paul, and that person was the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he had been at work in preparing uh, the apostle, uh, and his conscience was really hurting, and yet he remained an unbeliever. He continued to be hostile to God's people. So you can see extensive depravity written all over this passage. He didn't need more evidence. He had tons of evidence. A lot of people think, if only I could give more evidence to my neighbor, then he'd believe. No. Unless God changes the heart, they're going to continue to persevere in their unbelief. Dr. Krabendam used to say that it's not a problem of evidence. The heart of the problem is the problem of their heart. He needed a heart transplant. I've seen the same phenomenon to this day. Uh, Unbelievers sometimes have to work very hard at doing this, but our minds can be so creative to justify our unbelief. Here's how I think the apostle, well, before he was an apostle, how Saul probably justified his persecution of these Christians. He knew that Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says, he who is hanged is accursed by God. Scripture says cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, Jesus had been crucified. He was hanging on a tree. And so it was obvious to Paul God's curse was upon this man. How in the world can you say that this is the blessed of God if God has cursed him? That doesn't make any sense to me, Saul would say. And how can you say that he is raised from the dead? I don't believe it, Saul would say, because that would be to reverse God's curse. And so all Saul was doing was he was trying to apply the Old Testament penal sanctions against blasphemy. Well, actually, he was going a lot further than the Old Testament required because he was intruding in privacy into the homes and things like that. But he probably just thought, hey, I'm being even more devout than the Old Testament. I'm, um, I'm really trying to be a, a super uh, Pharisee. But it is amazing how our minds can rationalize and make us comfort, comfortable in our religion. A second way in which he resisted God is a lot more subtle, and it can be seen in the last words of verse 1, the first words of verse 2. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, etc. Where was he uh, getting his permission from? Who was he going to for authority? Now, I'm sure he tried to quote some scriptures to justify what he was doing, but ultimately his authority was the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He was seeking to please them and to climb the corporate ladder. 
And I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1 to see this dynamic that was at work in Paul's life uh, prior to his salvation. In Galatians, he is talking about um, how terrible it is when we live in the fear of man. He's arguing against that. He used the Apostle Peter as an example of people succumbing to the fear of man. But he used himself as, as an example as well. And let's begin reading at verse 14. Galatians 1, verse 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And that is really where his heart was at. Man's traditions, man's praise, competition to get man's prize. But look at the difference that happened at his conversion. Verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now, prior to his salvation, I think that was the first impulse of his heart. It was to confer with flesh and blood. It was to gain the approval of flesh and blood. And the reason was that man's authority meant a whole lot more to him than God's authority did. Verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then he talks in the next verses about how he stayed there for three years. And then he went back to Jerusalem to talk uh, to the apostles. But this is something that has kept so many people from faith. They're afraid of what their religious contemporaries are going to be thinking because their sense of approval, their sense of authority comes from man. You can see it in the Islamic tradition, but we can see it in Roman Catholicism. I have talked to so many Roman Catholics who have come to the point where they have agreed with me. Phil, what you're saying in the Scripture looks exactly right, what's there. But who am I to interpret the Scriptures? In fact, they'll quote the Ethiopian eunuch. How can I understand unless there's an interpreter? And they'll say, I have to trust the church. And I say, now, the church, you're saying you trust. But which interpretation of the church? Uh, which pope and which council are you going to follow because they've contradicted each other? In fact... Let me quote you some uh, early church councils and some early popes who agree with me and disagree with you. And this just really flusters them because they know that their trust is in the church. It's not in Jesus. It's not in the Scriptures. And there's so many creative ways in which Satan can keep us in unbelief. And this is one where our trust, our faith, our confidence is in man. Now, it's not just an institution that gets in the way of genuine conversion. Saul held to a system of thought that came from man instead of the way that came from Christ. Uh, there were several systems of thought that were being taught in Jerusalem back in the first century. Uh, that of the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Hasmoneans, the Herodians, the Zealots, the Therapeutae, the Qumran Society, and there were some other minor sects as well. Let me tell you something. These guys knew how to argue. They could hold their own and defend their system, not necessarily from the Scripture, but I tell you, in terms of theology, in terms of practice, in terms of philosophy, they could engage in incredible debates to defend their system. Now, Paul said later on when he was converted that this time in his life, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had a system and he knew how to defend his system. And again, it wasn't from the Scripture, but he was defending the uh, the system of man. And what was happening in the process is he was completely missing out on life. 
It's one thing to have a dry system. It's another thing to live life to its fullest. And I think it is not by accident that Luke uses the term to describe Christianity as the way. They were of the, the way. Christianity is not simply a system. It is a way of living. It is comprehensive. Now, it is a system as well, but it is also a relationship and it's a way of living. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And let me just give you the, the, the difference. I know a Christian who is a Reformed Christian, actually, who is so preoccupied with defending the picayune details of his system that he has not been able to find any church in North America that he can have fellowship with. And it's just an amazing thing how his preoccupation with the details of these things that were believed uh, several hundred years ago have kept him from being able to enjoy fellowship and enjoy life. It's just dried up his bones. And then when he argues with you, it doesn't matter how many scriptures you point out, he keeps going back to the system, back to the system. Any of us can do this. Any of us can do this. And this approach has robbed so many Christians of joy. But what I'm getting at here is it's kept many unbelievers from truly embracing the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Another subtle way of resisting true conversion is to hide yourself behind the skirts of religion rather than entering into a relationship. Uh, look at the questions of Jesus in verses 4 through 5. I think you'll see that the, the Jesus is here concerned about a broken relationship. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There is a relationship that has been broken. You're persecuting me. It's not just a difference of theology. It's not just a system. You are persecuting me. He goes on, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And again, just mentioning that's not in the majority text here, but Jesus did say it. Uh, we find later in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And so what was happening here is that in, he was seeking to, to hold on to religion and he had completely missed out on a relationship with God. And this is something, again, that's so easy for us to do. Very easy for us to become comfortable with religion and to shut out uh, a relationship with Jesus because why? You can control religion, right? It's a system. It's a box. Whereas a relationship with Christ, you never know what Christ might ask you to do. He's not really somebody you can control and put into a box. And yet it is so worthwhile to have a relationship because a religion without relationship is just dry and dusty, dry and dusty. Now, it's interesting that Saul even closes his eyes here, perhaps to protect himself from the light, but he doesn't open his eyes until verse eight. And when he opens his eyes, he can't see. OK, he's blind. But I thought, what an incredible symbol of the way in so many creative ways in which Christians try to shut themselves off from the truth because they're scared of the truth. Uh, they close their hearing. Maybe they don't want to read a book that you're offering to them because they're afraid it might be true and they might have to change. Uh, they're afraid to come to church. Many times unbelievers are fearful. What if what they're saying is true? It could make things real tough for me in Saudi Arabia or in some other place. And so they will, in many creative ways, try to shut out the light. Now, when he tells others his testimony, what happened here? Chapter 26, he speaks of spiritual blindness. 
Only now, he says, his job is to try to bring the light of the gospel to people who are just as blind as he used to be prior to his conversion. He says, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And I think his physical blindness is such a a wonderful symbol of the spiritual blindness that every man, woman, and child has when they are in bondage to sin. And so there's one sense in which we do not believe in irresistible grace. Um, we believe that that's the only thing the natural man's going to do when he sees grace in the lives of others, when he sees the outward call of the gospel, he sees all of these things, he's going to resist, resist, resist. That's what his natural heart is geared to do. But there's another sense in which irresistible grace is absolutely true. When God brings the inward call of His grace into the life of a believer, God will have His way. Uh, This is what... Paul said about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What's he saying there? He's saying God had to bring the inward call of his gospel to open her heart so that she would pay attention to the outward call of the gospel. And so I think we need to keep those two sides uh, clear and distinct. And you see this um, irresistible grace all through this section. First, Saul now has a new awareness of God that he did not have before. After seeing the bright light, uh, verse 4 uh, says, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice. Now, according to chapter, let's see right here, chapter 22, verse 9, the others didn't hear this voice. But what's going on? For the first time in his life, he is confronted with the person of God, God the Son, and it has just stopped him dead in his tracks. He could not argue with what he was experiencing because now it's not just a theory. No, it's the reality of God confronting him and lining up with what he has seen in the Scriptures. Many of you have experienced exactly the same thing if you were, were converted later on in life that there was a time when you were just oblivious to God. God was irrelevant to your life. And the next moment, you could not get God out of your thoughts. God was confronting you, your mind, your will, your emotions, your conscience. You knew that He had grabbed you by the collar and you had to deal with Him. This is called regeneration. Or other places, it's called a new birth or a resurrection from the dead or giving new eyes or opening the eyes, or giving new ears, but suddenly there is a new awareness of God that you simply didn't have before. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And here's the irony. Prior to God giving you that regeneration, prior to Him giving you this new awareness, you were probably oblivious to the fact that you didn't know God or that you didn't care about Him. Certainly Saul was. If you were non-religious, maybe you realized you didn't care about God. But Saul thought he was devoted to God, didn't he? Uh, He thought that he knew God, but he didn't. Uh, Pastor Jack Miller uh, was a pastor of uh, an Orthodox Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. And he said he was a number of years in the pastorate in a good church before he realized he was not even converted. Here he was preaching the gospel without having hearing ears and seeing eyes himself. And it just blew him away when God gave him that uh, new that new insight from his word. Now, let me just try to illustrate how this can so easily happen. There was an elderly man who was really having uh, difficulty communicating with his wife, and he was becoming more and more convinced that she was just going completely deaf. So he thought he'd try an experiment. He was on the far side of the room. Her back was turned to him, and so he just whispered. 
can you hear me? And there was no response. So he got a little bit closer and he said, can you hear me? Still no response. He got a little bit closer, tried the same thing, no response. He came up right behind her and he said, can you hear me now? And with obvious irritation in her voice, she said, for the fourth time, yes. (laughs) For the first time in his life, he realized he was the one that was deaf. It wasn't her, but he had been attributing this to her all of this time. And this was the experience with Saul. He was a man who considered himself to be faithful to God. And he considered the Christians to be the ones who were the apostates, right? He considered himself to be the one who was holding to the truth. They were the ones who were the blasphemers. He just didn't see that it was the exact reverse. Have you known people with a similar blindness? And you're just frustrated. You're thinking, can't they see? I mean, I've presented it so clearly and they just can't see. They're the ones that are, are blind. But this is the natural state of man. In Philippians 3, Paul described himself before his conversion as thinking that he was blameless according to the law. Never sinned. (laughs) Just blameless, right? Zealous for God, an advocate of the strictest sect of religion. And it's not until his conversion that he realizes with a shock or what he says here in verse 6, with astonishment that he was a sinner. He'd never realized this before. That he was a blasphemer. First Timothy 1, verse 13. He has a brand new appreciation and realization that God is in his life. He cannot get God out of his thoughts. He, he realizes he has a lack of relationship with God and his life does not measure up. Has God brought that change into your life? Uh, is God... Was there a time where all of a sudden God was in your thoughts 24-7? You know, where you just could not get rid of God. The next thing that God does in Saul's conversion is to convict him of his sin and show Paul how heinous, how heinous his sin really was. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that he didn't just say that Saul was persecuting other believers. That was true. But what God is doing is he is putting into perspective that his sin is far, far, infinitely more serious than simply a sin against other believers. No, he says, you are a rebel against me. You are a rebel against my cause. You are persecuting me. Now, this just blew Saul out of the water. He had never thought of his sin in this this light before. He's astonished. And a sign of genuine conversion is that our conviction becomes God-centered, not simply man-centered. When you were converted, if uh, you were not always um, uh, one who knew the Lord from the time of your uh, being a youngster, but if you were converted as an adult, maybe the first thing that came to your mind was not that you had persecuted Christ, but I can guarantee you, if you had a genuine conversion for the first time, you began to realize the seriousness of your sins against God's holy majesty. Your rebellion was not just against your parents. It was not just against your husband or against the state or against the church. It was against Almighty God. When you'd get frustrated against uh, providence, it's not just, you know, the lousy tire that you're kicking that went flat. You're kicking against God. It's not just the dog that you're kicking. You are kicking against God. And for the first time, you can say with David against you, you only have I sinned. See, it's a good sign of conversion when your conscience is far more stirred up with its rebellion against God than with its sin against the fellow man. And I think there's many people who have a fake conversion. 
it really was not a true conversion. And the reason I say that is because they have a social conscience that is troubled when other people point the finger at them. And so they'll repent of any sins that will get people off their backs and make people think better of them. But the secret sins, no. But in Paul's life, there was a complete switcheroo right here. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says that for the first time in his life, when he was first converted, he recognized that he was a sinner against God, that he was a coveter. He had all of these inward corruptions of envy and lust, and it grieved him. He realized for the first time what a sinner he was, but it's a God-centered conviction. Third, there was a sudden willingness to hear. Now, prior to this confrontation with Jesus, Saul had stopped his ears to the truth. And in case you weren't here earlier, turn to chapter 7, uh, verse 57, where you will see this. Here is the Sanhedrin at the end of the trial of Stephen. And it says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Now, Saul was one of the ones who stopped his ears. He didn't want to hear he was closing off his, his, his ears to the truth. And chapter 8, verse 1 says he was there. He was one of the ones who was consenting to their death. But this is what regeneration does. It, it makes an instantaneous change. Now, you may not recognize the fact that you have been regenerated because it's your thoughts that you are thinking. God doesn't force you. He changes your heart. And now, all of a sudden, where you hated God, you're loving Him and you're wanting Him. You're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, we read this earlier, says this, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a creative act of God where He does something new inside of you. And so back in chapter 9, you look at verse 5, it says about Paul, he said, Who are you, Lord? Instead of justifying himself, running from the Lord, accusing God, or whatever the other creative ways in which we stop hearing, now he's showing a willingness to hear. Uh, verse 6, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? No longer is Saul calling the shots. He's willing to listen to God, and he wants to follow whatever it is that God is asking him to do. Verse 5 also shows that there's a change in understanding. Before... Jesus was the enemy. Now Jesus is called the Lord. Before, Jesus was a cuss word. Now, He comes with reverence before the Lord. Before, God's people were, were, were the enemies. They were a nuisance. They were the ones He needed to get rid of. Now, all of a sudden, He sees them as being part of the body of Christ, loved by Christ, protected by Christ. He sees them in a whole new light. This is one of the reasons why He wanted to join the church. Because Scripture says, if you've been genuinely converted of God, God's going to implant in your heart a new love for the brethren. Let me read you an example. 1 John 4.20 if one, someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. I mean, talk about being blunt. <laughs> it doesn't say, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of mistaken here. You're a liar if you say you love God and you hate the brethren. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And I think we tend to forget this truth over time as we progress in our Christian lives. But we need to remember, God hates persecution against his son now just as much as he did in the first century. And when he said here, inasmuch as you, uh, well, how did he word it? Uh, why are you persecuting me? When Paul was persecuting believers, he was indeed persecuting Christ. Now that means 
that when you show unforgiveness and bitterness toward other believers, you are really bitter against Christ. When you're angry against fellow believers, you are denying the grace that God has bought you with. You are angry against Christ. He's saying how you treat each other, the mean things you say to each other, you're saying indeed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen that there are several ways in which the understanding is changed. Second, there is a change to the will. Verse 6 also shows that he's now not just understanding, but he has changed from a rebel into a servant. Saul's instant impulse is to see how he might serve the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? And you know, that's not just a question we need to ask when we are first converted. This needs to be the impulse of our heart day by day. Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, I do want you to notice here that servanthood is not an option. Jesus didn't say, now, Saul, we've got a, a theology called the carnal Christian theory. and You've got an option I'm going to hold before you. If you want to accept me as Savior and reject me as Lord, that's okay. You know, you can do that and be a carnal Christian. You'll go to heaven. But it really would be better. And I hope I can convince you into accepting me as Lord. I mean, that's just nonsense. The carnal Christian theory simply does not fit the text here. Jesus is Lord and we receive him as he is. And notice he does not give any options. You will be told what you must do. Must. True conversion always results in this person's heart, his will being changed. So it's no longer in rebellion against God. Now it's in a service to God. So the mind is changed. The will is changed. And uh, you can see even that the affections are changed. It's not in your outline there, but it talks about him trembling with fear. Even his affections are touched by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and by the way, conversion always has mind, will, and emotions involved in faith as well as in, as well as in uh, repentance. Um, conversion involves all three. But these changes to mind, emotions, and will naturally lead this arrogant man to have a new humility. Look at verse 8. Then Saul arose from the ground. Now, that's a good place to be, isn't it? Before, when you're before the majesty of God. Flat out on your face before the Lord. And when we are first converted, that is the kind of humility that God brings to us. We acknowledge, we realize, we are worthy of nothing but hellfire. We do not come to God to make demands of God. Instead, we recognize we are totally dependent upon His mercy. And uh, so, he, 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 he was on the ground and... At this point, he arises from the ground. But how many times do we as Christians over time abandon that humility and begin to have our own agendas with God and our own pride and our arrogance and the way in which we treat God? And that's a scary thing because there are false counterfeit uh, conversions. Where there is genuine conversion, there will be a new humility. Now, the neat thing about this is God always exalts the humble, doesn't He? Those who humble themselves. But Paul is forced into a new humility, not just before God, but before men. And so this proud leader of men is now helpless. He's being led around by other people. He's not used to doing this at all. This is a very humiliating thing. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. How humiliating. You know what? When a person is first converted, 
he's not as concerned about saving his pride, pride as he is about saving his life and coming before God. Uh, in fact, one of the first things God's Spirit does is he makes that old, remember the story of that uh, day gone God? And it fell before, every time it fell, finally its head busted off. Well, that's what pride is. That's what free will is. It's day gone God. And we want to maintain that. We want to worship that. And God says, nonsense. I'm taking every bit of that away. And if you're still hanging on to those things, you need to question the degree to which God's grace has worked in your lives because God always makes day gone fall before His majesty. This is one of the reasons why I'm convinced that Nebuchadnezzar's last conversion was a genuine conversion, why his previous ones were not genuine, because in his previous ones you can see the pride just stinking all through the story. But in his last conversion story, what he does is he writes the whole story down, all of the sordid details, even the embarrassing things. He repents of his sin. He acknowledges God to be King of kings and Lord of lords and Him to be the servant of the Lord. And he publishes it throughout the whole empire. See, this is what God's grace does. In fact, it's something we should just glory in. We should thank God for that His grace is sufficient to humble the heart of a Nebuchadnezzar. You see people out there who have the stench of pride all over them and their unbelief and their pride keeps them from the Lord. God can humble them and He can make their pride to fall down before His majesty. Well, verse 9 shows that he, how He is willing uh, to continue to humble Himself. It says, And He was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Uh, he had three days of blindness to think about His previous life of rebellion and to wait for God's mercies. Those who are converted do not demand anything of the Lord. They don't have a demanding spirit. They're just saying, Lord, if You send me to hell, I am justly sent to hell. I simply plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead His mercies. There's nothing that they bring in themselves. So, this blindness was God humbling Saul. The fasting was Saul humbling himself. In effect, it was saying, Lord, I agree with You. I am weak. I am nothing. I agree with You. And I'm fasting. I'm humbling myself. And whether God picked the three days as symbolic of the resurrection of Christ you know, and His being raised, that's what some people suggest. I, I, I don't see it in the text, but... Uh, it's very clear that every idea that Saul had about God was challenged during those three days. This was the breaking of Saul. Next week, we're going to be looking at the making of Paul. But when you think of conversions, there is always a breaking down process before there was a building up process. There is always repentance that leads to faith. And that's one of the reasons why in the Scripture you always find repentance listed before faith. In reform circles, it's very common for people to think, well, logically, faith has to come before repentance. Well, look it up in the Scripture. It ain't so, brothers and sisters. Repentance comes before faith. It leads to faith. You have to turn from idols to embrace the living God. They are two sides of one coin. In one sense, you can't have repentance without faith, but you can't have faith without repentance either. And uh, over and over again, you see, repentance and faith, or as Jesus worded it, repent and believe. Now, as we've gone over um, this message of the breaking of Saul, I hope it has stirred up your heart with thanksgiving to what God has broken down in your life and what He has restored in your life. And I hope you're just praising God and saying, thank you, Lord, for the incredible riches of your sovereign grace. I'm nothing. 
apart from You. Thank You, Lord, for what You have done in my life and help me for the rest of my life to be living it as unto Your glory. If your conversion does not look anything like Saul's, the other thing I would admonish you to do is to call out to God for a true conversion. That the Lord would do this kind of a work that He did Saul into your own life. Saul's life, I think, is a wonderful testimony to the acronym of TULIP, or what I prefer, the acronym ELECT. The E shows that Saul's depravity was extensive. The L shows that Saul's election was not based on any condition in his life. I mean, he didn't have any faith that God could foresee. God had to initiate, didn't he? He didn't see any, anything good in him. It was the conditions were met by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a Lord-centered election. So extensive depravity, Lord-centered election. Thirdly, effectual atonement. Christ had died to redeem Saul from his sins and redeemed he was. The C in elect stands for conquering grace, or as Tulip words it, irresistible grace. Uh, but I think you can see God's grace conquered Saul's heart. Saul wasn't the one who was seeking God. No, Romans 3 verse 11 makes it very clear. There is none who seeks after God. God's grace first has to conquer our hearts before we will seek him. And then the T in elect is going to have to wait for next week. It's triumphant saints. God has prophesied that Saul is going to persevere because of God's preserving grace. God's going to preserve him through all of the difficulties that he's going to allow him to go through in the next uh, several years. But from start to finish, salvation is of grace. Amen? Amen? Let's go to the Lord in thanksgiving. Father God, we do come to You and thank You for Your sovereign grace that from before the foundation of the world to uh, uh, the future eternity, our security is not in ourselves, but it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for the many Scriptures that say even that our faith was a gift that was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, that everything flows from the atonement. And we glory in that, Lord. We glory in that. We glory in the fact that we are humbled and that Your, great, your sovereign grace humbles the pride of man. Father, I pray throughout the church of Jesus Christ in our generation that You would cause Your sovereign grace to cause that old Dagon God of free will and pride to fall before Your awesome majesty and that people would once again glorify You in the incredible doctrine of salvation that You have given in Your Word. Help us not to intermix with it any of the stench of our own man-made efforts, any of the stench of humanism. But may there be a pure gospel that goes forth as living waters, bringing healing uh, to our communities. We love you, Father. We bless you, Father. And it is our privilege to serve you by your grace. And so we ask now that you would go with us as we go from this building. Enable us in the remainder of this day to truly honor this as a Sabbath day. Father, we are not the determiners of what is the Sabbath. We are not the determiners of any aspect of your law. We are simply here to hear. And I pray, Father, that we would come to You with hearing arts and that we would set apart this day and the rest of Your law, that we would sanctify it and realize what a wonderful gift, what a gracious gift this day and all of the other commandments are. And so, Father, bless us with a Sabbath attitude in this day that delights in Your sovereign grace. We pray in Jesus' name.